welcome to episode 28 of Goats on Podcast. <laughs> I'm Jessica Kerr, and I am happy to be here today with Rain Hendricks. And I am happy to be here today with my friend Sam Livingston Gray. And uh, hi, everybody. I'm pretty sure this <laughs> is... I'm pretty sure this is greater than code, but let's just go with it. And we are joined today by Janelle Klein. Janelle is a no-fluff, just-stuff tour speaker and author of the book Idea Flow, a technique for visualizing the friction and flow between a developer and the software, like an EKG that monitors your pain and creates a feedback loop that helps you improve. After researching IdeaFlow for years, Janelle turned into a hobbyist cognitive scientist, obsessed with the challenge of building a brain in code, like you do. After a 17-year career as a developer, consultant, and CTO specialized in data-intensive analytics, she's now a full-time entrepreneur on a crazy mission to bring free mastery-level education to every human in the world by conquering generalized AI. Welcome to the show, Janelle. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we'd like to start the show with your origin story. How did you get to be a superhero? <laughs> I don't know about superhero, but when I was growing up, my mom always told me to just, you know, follow your dreams and find your passion and to do, you know, whatever that thing is that you're drawn to in life. And so when I grew up, I was really into music. Like I played flute and guitar all through high school. Music was my entire life. And then when I went to college, I went to college to be a professional songwriter. And I got in class, though, and I started to realize what a career in music would be like. And I was like, I don't think I really want to do this. It sort of takes the passion and, and fun out of it. And so I was talking to my boyfriend at the time, and I was all upset. And he was trying to make me feel better. He's like, well, let's take a class together. That'll be fun. And so he's looking through the class catalog, and he's like, oh, assembly programming. That sounds like fun. X86 assemblies. And you got to keep in mind that my only experience with computers at this point was playing King's Quest in high school. <laughs> and so here I am in this assembly programming class. And, you know, it's kind of like programming my TI-85 in math class. You know, I've, I've got a few basic calculations, can move some registers around. I'm like, I got this. And then I started thumbing through the textbook and then I, I found interrupts and I was so excited. Like I could switch the computer into graphics mode and, and make the PC speaker beep. And it was like all these awesome things that I could do. I, I started just reading through the whole book and then making the game break out with like the colored blocks and a little paddle that moves around with the mouse, like completely in assembly, not knowing any other languages out there even existed. And so I showed my teacher what I was working on. And my teacher's like, hmm, uh, why don't you just keep showing me what you're doing? And, you know, as long as you do that, you get an A. <laughs> I'm like, I like this class. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. But that's when it really hit me of just, I can create anything that I can dream. You know, it was like this incredible art form where I could take ideas in my head and dreams that I've always had. And I could bring these things to life. Be and superpower. Cool that? Uh, one of my new friends I made, I, I'm trying to remember her last name, Denise. And she said, software is the closest thing in this world to magic. And I thought that was so awesome to just think about yourself as like one of the magicians in the world. I mean, how awesome is that? That we, we bring ideas to life. I mean, it's pretty cool. One of my uh, computer science instructors liked to use the metaphor of summoning a demon, where he talked about writing a program as being like constructing a summoning circle. And if you did not get every detail exactly right, the thing was going to break out of it and kill you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've seen those break out and attack before. It hasn't hasn't been good. Yeah, I generally emerged victorious though. Yeah, this is totally why I think any story of how you got into development is a superhero origin story. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> and in your case, you have even more because you've started studying like the development of development. Yeah, I just got fascinated with the problems of. I mean, we we've got all of these 
sort of ideas in our industry about the stuff that's supposed to work and, you know, following best practices. And as long as we, you know, follow the right recipe, then everything will end up turning out okay. And I believed that for a long time. I was like super gung-ho TDD zealot type, you know? And then I found myself on this project where we were doing, you know, all the right things, CI, unit testing, design reviews, code reviews. I mean, we had like a religious team by today's standards. I mean, this was the days of, you know, rational, <laughs> you know, like oh where, where agile was like, you know, this cutting edge thing where we were taking all of our heavyweight processes and heavy discipline and just getting into this, you know, new XP thing. And I was really into that. And then, you know, when I was on this project and we ended up basically driving off the rails anyway, and our, our project just you know, we brought down production three times in a row, went completely off the rails. And it took us a couple of years to be able to turn this project around after all that. And in that process of figuring out what was actually going wrong and what was causing our pain and the data we started measuring running totally counter to a lot of the best practice ideas, it really made me start rethinking how much of what we were doing in the way that we're thinking about our problems has to do more with just, you know, how we've learned to see goodness in a certain kind of design and just our own cognitive bias. <laughs> I'm laughing when I say that. No. Our own cognitive bias influencing how we, how we see the world. No, no. As programmers, we are perfectly rational creatures. <laughs> That's our superpower, right? Yeah, I guess that's probably the main thing that I've learned is that our brains don't actually operate on rational principles at all. <laughs> it's all, I mean, like our entire wiring powering of our brain is based on emotion. And I mean, you really see that in, you know, the, the world going on around you, how, how much emotional entrainment affects people. Totally. Janelle, in your book, you said that one of the things you learned, one of the things that was holding your team back from releasing and releasing reliably was automated tests. Yeah, that's kind of funny. I mean, like we had this mountain of automated tests that we had that, I mean, everybody has sort of experienced, you know, the maintenance burden associated with lots of automation. But the other thing that happens is once we start getting a high degree of noise in the system, it has all these counterintuitive effects, like making it so, you know, because your brains kind of tune out when you're doing stuff that's tedious and we can't really help it. It's just kind of how we're wired. When we start doing these tedious things, we start making assumptions and, and just greenwashing lots of tests. And it doesn't really feel like you're doing that. It's just stuff that you start seeing in hindsight of like, oh, I made that bar green and I probably shouldn't have. <laughs> and By noise, you mean test failures? Yeah, tests that are failing and nothing's actually broken that they just need repair. So I call those, quote, false alarms. Mm, brittle tests. Yeah. But it's not necessarily brittle tests. I mean, exclusively. Like, if you look at the sort of testing pyramid suggestion that we ought to, you know, write lots of unit tests and then, you know, fewer component tests and only a few UI tests at the top. Mm -hmm. And then you start looking at what kind of tests that ends up generating. What we tend to do when we think about our tests is, you know, what kind of code coverage are we getting and how do we sort of maximize that. And the way I think we need to be thinking about it is as our code moves from one state into another state, what are the mistakes that I can potentially introduce during that transition? And how do I build a mistake detector that's going to help tell me that when certain types of mistakes are made? So it's, it's like trying to get the right information to the human being is the challenge. And so you've got the noise thing, but you've also got really poor signals where, where we aren't like thinking about that flow from one state to another and sort of thinking about the application as validating that it works in a static state. And then you change it and validate it again, as opposed to how do I detect mistakes in the context of flow? Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. That's really fascinating. You used a beautiful phrase in your book. It was, that you started to design your releases. Yeah. So one of the things that we started doing is 
designing our releases in a way to reduce risk. So as we as we looked at any particular release, as uh, what are the changes that we're going to make in the context of that release, and what types of functionality are going to be at risk, and then we came up with a strategy for mitigating that risk. Sometimes you'd have a particular change in your release that just drives up the risk too much. It's like you know it could be even a one line of change that is going to take you a month to properly validate. And so one option is to change the functionality or, you know, potentially split it out into a release of its own and designing the releases around your risk profile so it's easier to control. Oh, Michelle Brush did a talk at O'Reilly Software Architecture last week where she mentioned the same thing where they started every release, they would make a grid of what's changing and how likely is this to cause a problem and how big is that problem going to be if it happens? And then building mitigation for any sort of uh, risk that was likely to either likely to happen or likely to be big if it does. I love your focus on change as opposed to just snapshots, as if the code really has meaning in a specific state. The point is that we're building a system and therefore it's constantly in flux. Yeah, it's it's like the only constant is change, right? Right. That was the entire focus of XP and Agile in general, right? Was this idea of making change easier to deal with. Yeah. Stop imagining that there is such a thing as right. That our code <laughs> is ever correct. It's just on the road toward better. Yeah. I think the other thing that you start to see a lot is once you start seeing how the change that you write affects other people, you start to realize how biased we are just in believing our code is good because it looks good to us. And then once you see how other people suffer from (laughs) the design decisions you make, it kind of totally changes your perspective on things. You hope that it does. I've worked with enough people who never got to that stage. (laughs) Yeah, there's a beautiful little illustration in your book again, which I totally spent like a couple hours last night reading because as soon as I saw it, I was super fascinated. There's a picture of like one person with a thought bubble that says better next to another person with a thought bubble that says better and a big not equal to in the middle. <laughs> yeah, I, I I found that a lot though of, of most of the time because our definition of better has been so fuzzy and hard to define in our industry that that we've tended to drift toward proxies, which is kind of where best practices come in. And if you talk to people about what they believe better to be, it is often better implementing best practices as opposed to better solving the problems. And we we really have to kind of get in that habit of asking, you know, what problem am I trying to solve? What problem am I trying to solve? And just making that a mantra to get out of this sort of solution focused anchoring of the problem is we don't have enough test automation is a is a really common thing I hear. It's Mm. funny because if you go back to the original introduction of this best practices idea into the software industry, which is largely due to Kent Beck, he was very clear that a best practice lives in a context and you have to apply it in a context for it to be the correct thing to do. And I think somehow we've we've lost that. Yeah. Yeah. It's so easy for a developer. I mean, we grow up focusing on tools. That's what we learn about for the first several years of our career, at least. And it's so easy for us to get into that trap of, oh, everything is about the tool and about the solution. And it's all too easy for us to forget that what matters is what does the user of our system want to do with it? User experience. And then it turns out that we can maximize that by maximizing our experience. So Janelle has a particular definition of better right? The code is better if we can flow our ideas into it with less friction. Did I get that right? Yeah. I I think the only difference I would say is from the very beginning of your statement of the code is better when. And the problem I think I have is that I think we need to abandon the code is better as an object-oriented statement and start shifting to the experience is better and all of our experiences are better as opposed to um, assuming that the code has any innate quality of betterness out of context. And I I think trying to define that into an absolute is so anchored in our head because it's what we've done over the last, you know, history of software development that trying to shift out of that paradigm initially requires kind of a deliberate awareness of those type of anchorings. That's beautiful. There is no, the code is better. There's only our experience is better. Yes. 
it's kind of like when I was in college, I would spend money on things because I didn't have very much money. So if I spent it, I wanted to like have something that I got to keep. And after I got out of college and started working as a developer, then I accumulated too many things and I decided that what matters is actually experience and started spending my money on that. And I've been much happier ever since. <laughs> That's awesome. Things are fun if they give you a good experience. <laughs> <laughs> right. My experience with things is often that I just have to manage them. <laughs> oh, right, right. Which gets back into the, the code is not an asset. It's a liability. Right. Yeah. We're talking about how we're not very good at the subjective measurement of time. Uh, and I agree. But I, I also think that there's a problem with the way that we measure effort and that we don't really understand where it's going. So we were talking about, let's say, fixing a bug. How long does it take to fix a bug? Some teams track that. You know, they have an issue tracker. They can tell how long it took from a bug to go from open to resolved. But what does that mean? Where does that time really go? What are the actual steps involved in fixing a bug? It's more than just reading the bug report and then writing code. There's a lot more. There's discovery. There's a whole ser you know series of steps that go into solving a bug. And which ones of those are getting the time? What if the most amount of time you spend solving a bug is figuring out which person should take the bug report? Right. For me, the, the most valuable step is often that 10 seconds where I'm talking to somebody else and they say some random thing and I'm like, wait, that's it. But Janelle, with your idea flow, you have a particular way of dividing up that time. Yeah. So I've been focusing on creating a model of the problem solving process itself, and then measuring the amount of friction in each stage of the problem solving process. So with the example of debugging, you know, some bug that you have, and the first part being having to go and figure out who the bug belongs to, in the idea flow map, that period of time would be marked as strategy and be hashtagged with collaborative pain because it's an issue with uh, having to figure out whose knowledge, you know, and effort this belongs to. So we're basically, we've got tools that integrate with the IDE and kind of a standardized model that works across development because it's measuring things that are just part of the problem solving process itself, like cognitive dissonance, for example. In general, what I associate with the word pain now, which I've kind of done deliberately through rewiring my brain, is measuring the duration of cognitive dissonance as pain, or you can think of it as diagnostic difficulty. So I've got some unexpected thing that comes up on the screen. How long does it take me from the time that that unexpected observation occurs to the time that the problem is resolved? And then one of the things you start seeing is the skyrocketing costs of diagnostic difficulty having to do with the 90% of our software that isn't our code, but it's, you know, everybody else's code in terms of third-party libraries is just, you know, that one line of magic code that we've optimized for brevity and cyclomatic complexity and whatnot is this abstraction that's at a hundred levels high and it's all well and good when that abstraction works fine. But as soon as something breaks, it's like an egg that's cracking and all of its guts spill out. And suddenly you have to understand this <laughs> complex picture between cause and effect. And that's where, you know, we're losing all of our time now is in diagnostic difficulty. I, I want to unpack a little bit specifically this error handling process, because I think it might be a, a good example for us to talk about for a while. So in a book by Gerald Weinberg called Why Software Gets in Trouble, he describes the process that goes into resolving a failure. And it starts with detection, detecting that there was a failure, where a failure is defined as a difference between what you experience and what you expected to experience, you know, specifically one that you don't like. And then the fault is the underlying cause of that failure within the system uh, or causes. And so he breaks this down into detection location or isolation, which is matching the failure with the underlying faults that caused it. Resolution is the process that ensures that a fault no longer exists, which could be done by making a change to the code, classifying the bug as won't fix. There are a variety of ways to resolve a bug. Distribution, which is the process of getting the bug report into the hands of the person that is going to eventually fix it. So looking at that as sort of a framework for evaluating your error resolving process how would you model that within your system? 
Interesting. So the main things that like, as you were going through this list of things, I kept thinking of, this is a set of goals to achieve, as opposed to a process by which I would arrive at the result. It's sort of like the set of results. And like, if I think about how I go about troubleshooting a particular issue, I think about it as a series of experiments I'm going to run. And I imagine that my code is like a, a sandwich that I've got electricity going through. I've got some set of behavior that's changing. And then I've got things that make it difficult to observe what's going on and things that make it difficult to kind of manipulate the inputs. And I'm thinking about, okay, how do I run an experiment that's going to give me a clue that's going to help me narrow down the relationship between cause and effect? So I think about what are the scope of possibilities and what are the potential clues that I might come up with. And as opposed to thinking about, I, I mean, I realize there's a step of isolation, but I see those as a set of goals to achieve and not a process by which I would arrive at a solution to those things. Like I, I, I don't see how I could do those things step by step in that way in my actual workflow. Yeah, that's fair. I don't think it's a process so much as just a way of classifying the time spent in the process sure. of fixing a bug. Sure. I, I and and maybe that's it. It's just different than the troubleshooting model I have in my head because I'm I'm sort of the way I break up my metrics is by um, experimentation cycles. Initially, you've got so I'm measuring haystack size in terms of from the moment you stop staring at the code and decide to start moving into doing stuff. I measure um, that time from initial changing things until the time you run your first executable thing, like validating that the thing works to some degree. And I'm measuring that time as haystack size. And then I'm looking at the characteristics of the experimentation cycles that go into isolating any bugs and problems within that haystack. And then what is the correlation between sort of the inputs and outputs of the experiments that you're running relative to the nature of the code that you've changed inside, you know, this box. And then when we look at diagnostic difficulty, we kind of look at patterns and the characteristics of experiments and how we can improve observability of what's going in the box or make it easier to manipulate inputs uh, relative to the types of things that seem like we're slowing down that process of experimentation. But it gives you visibility into things like, for example, ambiguous clues. When you get an output on the screen and there's multiple possibilities for how behavior can occur and you make a bad assumption and go down some rabbit hole, whether it's non-deterministic behavior or something that's just abstracted in a way that creates ambiguity, you start looking at the system in terms of its inputs and outputs from an experimentation perspective, as opposed to the design of the code itself. And often kind of, you know, when you look at the data, a lot of times, you know, we've had cases where we've like refactored stuff to make the code better. And then, you know, it looked all neat and modular, but the experimentation characteristics ended up adding all this time to troubleshooting because, you know, sometimes we'd end up having, we'd unit test the little parts, but find ourselves having to kind of integrate in order to find the majority of the, the mistakes anyway, because they were kind of in that integration space, which ended up increasing the scope and the difficulty of isolation then. So it's, you start looking at all the set of problems in a, under a different model. It's interesting. We, we agree on a sort of a larger concept here, which is that you can only know what, you know, what you choose to observe. Okay. If you only measure how long it takes to resolve a bug, that's all you know. You don't know where you spent the time. If you, in addition, choose to measure how long does it take to get a test running, then you know something else. You know something more. If you measure instead of just how long does it take to resolve a bug, if you break it down into detect, locate, and resolve, then you might learn something surprising, which is that it's taking your team longer to locate the source of the bug than it is to actually write the code that fixes it. We both seem to agree that it depends what you measure informs your outcome in some sense. Okay. Janelle has another point there. Janelle, tell me if I've got this right. When you're looking at breaking down a problem, you're not looking to break it down into steps that are goals. You're looking to break it down into smaller problems. And yes. you can't solve a problem until you can do an experiment to find out whether it worked. Whereas in the bug process, if you break it down into distribute, locate, these little sub goals, you don't know whether you succeeded at the first one until you get the, to the very end of all of that and see if you're able to fix the bug. That's an excellent point. Like based on the problem breakdown thing, you're right. It's not a breakdown of the problem into smaller problems. 
it would violate that rule. It seems more like a retroactive description of, of what you did. Yeah. And maybe if you do, if you go through the experimental process enough times, uh, you start to recognize, oh, hey, I think I might have just crossed over from, you know, this phase into that phase. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily guide you in the moment. Do you think you could carve up those things after the fact of how much time you spent in each of those buckets? Yeah, that's exactly what was done. And so there were okay. studies where people were, at, were asked to track these things and they were given clear instructions as to where the boundaries are. I see. So the use of it was retroactively looking at your experience that you had about how much time did you spend in each of these buckets estimate? Yes. Okay. Correct. And so I you do you do the work that you would normally do solving a bug, but you mark down times where you spent in these different buckets. And when you're done, you can go back and look at the breakdown of where you spent the time in. And it was often surprising where that time was being spent. But it is different from explicitly doing experiments in the way that you're describing. I think the thing is that I found that a lot of these things that we do in hindsight bias, we basically sort of look at the problems after the fact and we think, oh, well, this was clearly a problem. I should do better next time. <laughs> and then we believe that because, you know, we thought about it, that that will mean that we automatically do better next time. And in reality, <laughs> when we're in the moment of that decision, in order for those past experiences to come to mind, that situational recognition has to trigger the memories of our past experiences for those things to actually come to mind. And if everything we're doing in is in hindsight bias, what happens is we tend to base our hypotheses based on the predictions that we're making in hindsight bias, as opposed to reflecting on the experiences and stuff that happened in the moment and then linking those things situationally to past experience. Like, for example, if I just sort of categorize those things and went, wow, that really took us a long time to isolate those bugs. What do I do with that information? Like, how do I know that the things that I'm doing are going to actually make the situation any better? How do I even know if after I go and, you know, see those metrics and then make improvements based on, you know, to make the bugs easier to isolate that the things that I did even did any good? Because yeah, that's that would be where this process of experimentation would come in. The thing here is knowing that there is such a thing as the time it takes to locate a bug on which you can spend the attention to improve it. And okay. if you only if you only measure the time it takes to resolve a bug as one thing, you don't know that that, that process is actually composed of multiple other smaller things you do. And you may actually be good at one of them. And then trying to improve that thing would be a waste of time compared okay. to trying to improve some other thing. But then the process of improving that thing you've decided to spend your time on is is not, it does benefit from experimentation and I think the, the other things that you're talking about. Huh. Like the part where you learned that we actually don't spend much time waiting for tests. So optimizing for test execution speed is not nearly as useful as optimizing for like, what was it, the clarity of the tests? This Human is cycles. definitely analogous to that. Human this cycles. is, it actually for a lot of organizations takes longer to locate the source of a failure. You know, what part of the code or what part of the infrastructure is causing the failure than it does to actually fix that thing once you find it. And so yeah, if which you're spending calls your time. The, the haystack. Yeah. The haystack yeah. size. And if you're spending your time improving the time it takes you to, you know, fix a bug in the code once you found it, you're optimizing for the wrong variable. From your experience, do you see people like developers not being aware that there's these multiple aspects of things? And like, for example, that thinking time dominates troubleshooting more than fixing the bug. It seems like a thing that managers might not understand, but developers, I would think, would be a generally understood thing. My experience is that there's been a poor distribution of this information throughout the organization. So, for example, developers might not know how long it took the bug to land on their desk from when it was reported. Mm, okay, I could see that for sure. They may have some insight into where they're spending their time when they fix the bug, but it wouldn't be measured. It would just sure. be intuition. Well, it sounds like if you're doing hindsight estimates that it's going to be intuition-based anyway. I'm not sure. So you... You do this, it's, this is live. You do it as you're working. It's, you report the time that you're, so you say, I'm going to start doing location now. And then you say, okay, I stopped location and I'm moving on to resolving. Okay. I'm sorry. I did not realize that. I was thinking. So I was this thinking. is, this is just time tracking, but breaking it down into more discrete. I see. And okay. sort of task oriented reporting. I apologize. I misunderstood that. That's then. fine. Yeah. I got the same, but it's fine. Now we know. It seems similar in that way in terms of you need to know 
if you want to figure out why your testing process has a lot of friction, you need to know which part has the friction specifically. And the more specific you can get, the better you can do in targeting your improvements. Yeah, Janelle has different accesses. I really, I just, you could read the book to our listeners, the Ideal Flow book. It's super fascinating the way she breaks it down into smaller problem solving cycles. And a lot of it, I noticed, came down to building a conceptual model of how the software works. Like you said, your team having a model of how the software works. Go on. I was just going to say one of, one of the things that we noticed was how much time that and how many mistakes that we were making because people had misunderstandings of how the software worked. And so we spent all this time working on test automation and trying to get the test to somehow catch the bugs and ultimately ended up solving a lot of our quality problems by building a data dictionary and sitting around a room with a whiteboard and just hashing out vocabulary and stuff. Like the effect that it had on improving the code and the conceptual models of the team was just mind-blowing. And it took a day as opposed to the year of test automation that we did to solve a lot of our quality problems. A day. Wow, that sounds so practical. <laughs> <laughs> What if for hackathon day, we instead hacked on it universal language? Understanding the domain? What 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 use could that possibly have? <laughs> it's yeah, one I, of those skills that I, I needs to get taught. And I think it's kind of largely gone out the window with the shift from heavyweight processes to like agile, yay, we don't need to draw architecture diagrams anymore. And, <laughs> you know, like all the stuff that kind of gets thrown out. Like I think of all the most practical things, it's understanding how to build a ubiquitous language glossary ER diagram. I just, those basic skills of understanding, you know, how to hash that out with your team and, and the importance of it. I just want to go on a real quick rant here, which is that you talked about throwing away all this heavy process and going to Agile, yay. But the only reason that Agile works at all is that it's about this idea of gathering information and using it to create meaningful feedback and then acting on that feedback to change your process. And so many teams like adopt Scrum and the idea of, you know, making your reporting visible to your upward management structure, but don't ever actually focus on this idea of using feedback and they just keep repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again. I think it's worse than that because, you know, if you think about what we do in a retrospective, we sit around and we start with a question like, what are the biggest problems that we need to solve? And then we start brainstorming and coming up with a big list. And then, you know, once we've got this big list of improvements, we just start chipping away in our improvements for months. And what happens you know, we're in this meeting brainstorming about the most complex question ever. What are the biggest, most important problems that we ought to improve? And so what comes to mind, again, cognitive bias, is what problems do I feel the most intensely about? And then all of these different biases come to mind. There's mm-hmm. there's those unit tests that you feel like you should have written and you feel really guilty about. So that stuff comes to mind. And sunk cost bias of, of like us having having all these tests and things that we've invested all this energy and that has problems with it that, you know, once we're in that, we've invested in that, we want to fix it. And there's just so many things that make all, all this stuff come to mind that isn't necessarily in correlation with the most important things. And then we go and say, hey, we're doing feedback and science and agile and improving. And <laughs> we end up spending tons of time improving all this stuff that doesn't make any difference. And we just get caught in this cycle of, ritual and like all these things that we're doing in agile have just lost their meaning it just makes me miss the days of of xp when you know like the things that we're doing about were about hardcore discipline and learning and discovery and these words used to have meaning (laughs) (laughs) i wonder if back in the day when it was about hardcore discipline and discovery that was the particular things we needed in that context and now we need to discover something different yeah Well, I've seen this happen in a lot of different areas where there's this pendulum that swings, you know, multiple ways for for a while. And then every time it crosses over the middle again, it's like, wait a minute, we need to have a paradigm shift and, and shift to a mode of principles. And there's all these systems that seem to have that same quality of an oscillating pendulum that eventually 
like shifts into something different. And eventually, you know, we, we go, Oh, there's like principles. And I, I think at some level we need some kind of concrete system to anchor around principle as opposed to in, you know, getting stuck on best practices at one end of the pendulum or the other. We and, need unit tests for our practices. Yes. <laughs> That's the solution is more unit tests, right? It's like the, the hammer for every problem. Well, it's, it's, it's an experiment. I mean, anything that we choose to do in our retro that we need to fix this, how are we going to know that worked? How are we going to know that helped? Yeah, but we have no feedback loop. I mean, that's been a challenge. Right. Our feedback loop at at, at its best is, well, what's our bias next week? <laughs> <laughs> and that, like the documentation is an example of the pendulum swing. Uh, we clearly yeah. had way too much internal documentation, and now we've swung to none. And can we get back toward the middle already? Yeah. So the question isn't, should we have documentation or not? It's which documentation is useful in our context right now. I love that. Like, you know, in this moment, what does I need right now? You know, what, what is the question I need to ask? And so I can make just the right decision in just this moment. For me, it's usually what yak do I need to shave so that right now I don't have to experience this pain again. I wonder if... Every organization can adopt these changes or if it's more successful for certain organizations, depending on their development in terms of incorporating other sorts of feedback into their process. So that some organizations would be more mature than others or there are organizations that don't even incorporate feedback loops into their process at all. There are organizations that are pretty advanced in the way that they incorporate feedback loops, but they haven't gotten over these these biases that you're talking about. And it, it seems like from my experience, there's something of a, of a linear track that organizations get on in terms of increased levels of competence. You have to start by incorporating feedback cycles about the product you're building, and then you can incorporate feedback cycles about the process you're using to build it. But my experience is that trying to jump ahead isn't always very successful. It makes sense. So you can only go meta one level at a time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, a, a much more succinct way of saying what I was saying. And so I guess my question is, where does a, where does an organization have to be culturally or in terms of their progress in these other areas to be ready to adopt these, these techniques? That's a really, really awesome question. I'd say probably the biggest handicap to adoption has nothing to do with the ability to use the techniques themselves so much as the vulnerability issue. So there's organizations with, that are where developers are in a, a lot of pain from just constant trying not use the word abuse, but, but I mean, in some cases I would definitely call it abusive, but sometimes, you know, a lot of the, uh, the abusive environments, when you find out what's going on, it's more ignorance than anything else. But that said, being vulnerable and feel like if you collect data that it's going to be used against you mm -hmm. is a tough challenge. Um, I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you're talking about this. One of the things that characterizes these sort of lower functioning organizations is that the way is the way they use blame. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. I like shudder whenever somebody says the phrase root cause. We need to find the cause of this. <laughs> <laughs> where root cause means where were we when we decided that we had spent enough time trying to figure this out? Yeah. So rain and possibly our listeners, uh, one interesting way of framing this, uh, organizational question that I have seen and, and that seems really useful is this idea that, uh, Jim Shore and Diana Larson have been working on for a couple of years, which is this idea of agile fluency. And they have this model of, you know, different phases that an organization will go through in its adoption of Agile and the characteristics of the kind of work that they do and the way that they do it. You can look it up, uh, just search for Agile Fluency, Jim Shore, Diana Larson, and uh, you'll find you'll find some of the stuff they've written about it. It's, it's uh, quite useful. It's interesting to me that this concept keeps reappearing. Mm -hmm. Back in, I think, the 70s or maybe the early 80s, Philip B. Crosby created a concept of the quality management maturity grid. <laughs> and he ranked organizations on a maturity scale that started with these sort of different cultural patterns that they work under, starting with one that he called variable, uh, which is basically the point at which developers realize that they can't go at it alone and that they need managers, but they still hate managers. <laughs> and so 
Wait, this, there's a stage and, beyond that? <laughs> right? So this concept of what are the, the levels of maturity or the levels of capability? I'm, I'm not a fan of maturity necessarily because I think that if, if you're writing a shell script to manage your, your, you know, whatever in, on your machine, you don't need a, this big agile process. You can have a very relatively immature process and still be fine. So I, right. I think it's more about competence or how challenging are the problems you want to solve. But anyway, so this idea of these different levels has been around for a long time. So what you're saying is that maturity has uh, a context just like everything else. Yeah, maturity is, is sort of a loaded term that I don't yes. like to use. It's very judgmental. Speaking of context, do we have a listener shout-out today? Wait, how does that have anything to do with context? This is the context of our listener shout-out. <laughs> very well. Uh, so Well played. <laughs> <laughs> So, listeners, uh, we are a 100% listener-supported show. So if you like what we're doing and you want us to do more of it, you can donate to us at patreon.com slash greater than code. A donation at any level will get you into our Slack community, and if you donate at the $10 a month level, you will get a shout-out at least once on the show. Today's shout-out goes to Paula Giron. She's Qual, Q-U-O-L-L, on Twitter, and she describes herself there as... Miffy to her friends, a semantic web programmer, closurer, physics enthusiast, martial artist, triathlete, musician, spouse, and parent, but not necessarily in that order. I've spoken with uh, Paula a few times in uh, in our Slack community, and she's got some really interesting things to say. So if you want somebody else cool to follow on Twitter, go check her out. Now back to our show. Thank you. We talked about the conceptual model that we need in our brains, but Janelle is building a conceptual model of our brains in code. Yeah, I've got a long way to go on this project. We're just getting started, but I've been I've been working on the the architecture of how to do it for several years now of of basically synthesizing a bunch of research kind of cross discipline in in cognitive science and tangent arenas in in figuring out how to model the recursive meta loop structure of consciousness. Cool. How many levels of meta do you have to get to for that one? One more. <laughs> right? It's, it's, like, it's like the invention of metaprogramming for neural nets. So it's like once we invent the meta, you know, it becomes kind of this recursive meta thing in the same way abstraction works in code. You can just kind of keep doing it over and over again. And each each innovated level of abstraction, you know, takes some thinking to figure out kind of how to implement another layer. But it's like once you have the ability to go meta, you can just like go meta meta. <laughs> oh, now I want to frame cognitive biases as leaky abstractions. Ooh. Oh, they totally are, right? We've got a category in our brain. We've got an abstraction somewhere in there, and it's not accurate as no model is. Well, some of them, I was thinking about this this morning, some of them like the, the unit completion bias. This is the idea that, for example, we might want to, we are strongly biased to finish the food that is on our plate, even if it's more food than we actually need right now. I mean, that one has a clear evolutionary basis in that, you know, if you are inclined to stop eating just as you get full, then you might not survive until you get your next, uh, you find your next trove of food. But there are other ones that, yeah, I don't know where the heck they come from. <laughs> Janelle, you mentioned hindsight bias earlier. Would you define that? Sure. It's um, when something looks preventable in hindsight, that in the context of the moment of the decision is actually not preventable. Ah, mm. yeah. Yeah. We tend to judge decisions based on their outcomes as opposed to the information available at the time. Mm -hmm. The latter takes a lot more empathy. Yeah. More so when we're talking about other people than versus ourselves, which is another bias. Yeah. So how much do you hate brains after thinking about all of this? Or rather, how much do you hate your own brain after thinking about all of this? <laughs> how could anyone hate brains? It's like the most fascinating thing in the world is ourselves, right? I mean, who doesn't like to think about how, how cool brains are? That's true. But as somebody with ADHD, there are times where I wish my brain worked a little bit differently than it does. Yeah, I found that I've just sort of learned to roll with it. Like, I mean, even just, you know, in the context of this conversation, I've had times where I, I get excited on a thread and then my brain goes somewhere else. And I'm like, oh, lost my thought, you know, and that happens to me a lot. And what I found is that there's some things that I'm like really good at because my brain is sort of wired kind of weird. I'm like really good at connecting metaphors and being able to synthesize across like totally just 
just different domains. Yet at the same time, like there's some like basic functioning kind of stuff I really, really struggle with. <laughs> and so I've, I've had to, you know, find friends and people to kind of fill in my gaps in life of things that I'm not good at. And then I kind of roll with what my brain wants to do and be good with it. <laughs> we all get dealt a different hand of cards and um, the body we live in is a constraint. So might as well enjoy yourself. <laughs> Yeah, it's important to recognize your own constraints and that they're not the same as everybody else's. And and also just, yeah, let yourself be bad at the things you're bad at. I figure I need to be, I need to shore up my weaknesses exactly far enough to hand it off to someone else. <laughs> Janelle, can I ask yeah. you a question? Of course. Yay. So once you come up with a model for this system that you're working with, you understand the pain points, the friction points where you have a good model of, of the system. How do you decide what to change when you're trying to improve it? So in addition to the picture of pain, which I basically found wasn't enough in that when you start measuring the pain, you still have the same problem of, okay, well, how do I improve? And this ultimately turned into a bunch of principles about what are the likely causal factors of pain in these circumstances. So this is where I started talking about the thickness of the code sandwich as the cause of diagnostic difficulty. And if you can attribute something to sort of an attribute of that model, like an observability problem in your code sandwich, then you've got a more tractable thing to do and an experiment to run then to see if improving observability in this way reduced your diagnostic cycles. I also focus on feedback that's like risk associated Part of it is you, you try stuff and learn, but a lot of it ends up being after you start a, start to see the patterns of what works, which are largely informed by the body of knowledge that we have in our industry around best practices, but kind of getting back to first principles of those things of like continuous integration and problem breakdown and agility and usability and, and all these things that we've largely learned, you start seeing and learning the situational context and all the nuance to how all that kind of applies and then have a feedback loop so you can tell if the things that you're doing actually made things better or worse. And then that kind of helps you to clarify the situational context rules around that. I like that you mentioned risk, um, well, for a number of reasons, but one is that it's a good example of the importance of my most basic heuristic for making changes, which is that you have to do better than random chance. I like that. You would like to do better than random chance. You might think that that would be easy, but I'll give you a good example of when it's not. Let's talk about deciding which risks to take on in a project in terms of some features or bugs will be harder or more risky to solve or could have bigger downside impacts. We have a natural tendency as human beings, I think most of us, to tackle the easier stuff first, the low-hanging fruit, get that out of the way. But if you do that, what you're actually doing is making the project more risky over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where if you were just to allot those decisions randomly and randomly pick a thing to do, you would spread that risk out over time. <laughs> and so that's a, it's a literal example where doing something randomly would be a better choice than the actual choice that you're making. Not you, obviously, but the general you. One. This is a property of complex systems. There's like simple systems that you can like see very clearly the cause and effect. And then there's complicated systems that are also random, like uh, molecules in a room that don't affect each other. And then there's something about complex organized systems. Someone on Twitter, please remind me of this phrase. Complex organized systems that there's a zillion parts and they affect each other. So yeah, like, like Rain said, you're not going to get complex adaptive. I don't know, but you're not going to get random chance. You're likely to get something a lot less predictable than that. What you're sort of talking about here are chaotic systems, I think, maybe, uh, where uh, where actions have uh, unexpected effects. Yeah, chaotic path-dependent ones, as opposed to like actual random ones like the molecules. Is it complex? So anyway, when I'm deciding how, what do I want to do to change this system to improve it, one of the questions I ask is, what if I made a random decision? Could that work? <laughs> Sometimes it actually can. And then the next question is, if I'm going to make a, an intentional decision, it has to do better than that. Yeah, that's interesting that you chose that example of sorting for low risk versus randomly uh, selecting risk. One of the things that I've 
slowly been learning over the past 20 years or so is this idea that I will be better off if I try to identify the highest risk part of the system first and try to work on that so I can mitigate that risk. And only then will I know if it's worth pursuing the rest of the thing. Yeah. I don't always remember to apply it. You know, sometimes I just have habits or I have too much fear and, and I, I go back and I work on the little things that I feel like I'm, I'm safe dealing with. But more and more, I'm, I'm starting to recognize that I have to start with the, the greatest risk. It's interesting. Front-loading risk is actually a good strategy for a number of reasons. One is that the risk, overall risk, goes down because the most risky things are no longer there. Uh, so the remaining things are less risky. The other is that if things do go bad, you have more time to correct them. Or you can abort more quickly without spending as much money and resources on it. Yeah. So it turns out that the strategy we choose sort of intuitively is actually the pessimal strategy. Right. <laughs> Did you say the pessimal? As opposed to optimal. Yes. Pessimal. As, like okay. optimist, pessimist. As in pessimistic. As opposed to whack-a-mole. <laughs> yes. That'll do. Which is also how we usually work. Janelle, you said something about going back to the first principles of best practices, which is kind of, there's a lot of buzzwords in there. Does that mean like getting back to why the best practices are good in the first place? Well, I was going to say yes, but it's like the, the why behind why we came up with the best practices. So like in the context of when these things were applied, why did they work and how do we replicate the why, even if we don't replicate the best practices? Yeah, I again have to bring up Kent Beck because what he the way he described patterns was as a resolution to a specific set of tensions. Yeah, and yeah. it's interesting. I was listening to a uh, many years ago. I was listening to a really interesting interview with Kent about his writing the book Small Talk Best Practice Patterns, and uh, he said that the way he wrote the book was essentially he would sit down and he would write a line of code, and then he would think about why he wrote that line of code that way and sometimes spend three or four hours like teasing out all of the various factors that went into that. And the, the result essentially was this book. I love, there's a certain level of, I don't know if hubris is the right word there, but to <laughs> think that whatever decision I happen to make in the moment is the best way to do something is, is, is interesting. Well, yeah. I, I think it's a great book and I love the patterns. I just love that that was his concept, which was whatever I did, was the best thing to do. Or if it wasn't, what would be better, right? But yeah, I think it would take a lot of humility and honesty with oneself to go through that process, to have that sort of level of meta-awareness of, you know, first off, why did I do that? And then yes, to, to address the question that you raise, Rain, of, well, was that the right thing to do? And if not, why not? I, I don't think Kent Beck has a problem with humility. It's just <laughs> sure. described him. Yes, that's, that's true. I, I kind of feel like maybe... We could drill down in a bit deeper into, I guess, maybe the answer here is go read the book. But what is, what is this process of identifying the pain in a project like? What what do you do? What are the actual like steps? The tooling integrates with your IDE environment and measures your pain in the context of an experience. And then process-wise, before the task starts, spend 15 minutes going for a walk. One of the people on the team is doing the task. The other person is the inquisitor that asks questions and helps to dig into risks and help think through the risks and then come up with kind of a rough initial strategy of what you're planning to do and a plan to mitigate the risk and then do the task and measure your experience. And then after the task, do the same thing, going on a 15-minute reflection walk and look at what happened versus the you know initial strategies that you set out or risks that you set out to mitigate versus what actually happened and where the pain points were coming from in that context. And then tagging the particular incidences with hashtags and notes that describe uh, like what the causes were, what could be better, what suggested kind of refactorings might might help with improving the development experience for that questions that you want to ask yourself next time to try and think of things that you didn't think of this time in the moment. So it's trying to get out of that kind of hindsight bias with putting actual, actual actionable things forward and then running, you know, if you have, for example, an improvement idea, say, for example, you want to refactor the code because you believe it's going to have um, this sort of effect on usability for the next 
you know, an upcoming story. Well, how can we run a, what I call a prefactoring experiment where you basically front load the little refactoring part to be able to, to see what that experience is going to be like in the context of that actual change. So you can learn a bit about it. And after you uh, start tagging all these things, you can kind of add up the different problems by tag type and get a feel for where your problems are and then use that as guidance for driving improvement. You can kind of slice and dice and aggregate things in different ways. Like there's definitely situational context involved with things. But the nice thing is since all of the metrics are measuring a deviation from a norm, like from how much risk you're accumulating in terms of frequency and magnitude, it's really easy to aggregate the data and then slice and dice by kind of primary dimensions, which I have that all written up in the book about like what's slice and diceable model wise, but we've got it boiled down so that you can actually make statistical models of and do statistical process control on developer experience data, which is what we're building the tools around to be able to do. This is super fascinating. So when you slice and dice it, do you compare it to more data from your own team or like developers in general? It's it's interesting because it's definitely in general within your own team to an extent, but there's a lot of things that are fairly generalizable, like that we're looking at aggregating data at a much larger scale for. So for example, we share a whole lot of the same infrastructure and libraries, right? And cross, what is the learning curve of Angular 2? I'm learning that right now. <laughs> and, you know, it'd be nice to have, for example, um, as opposed to having a problem and your only option out there being trying to find something on Stack Overflow, you're trying to evaluate learning curves or or the problems that people have run into in the past and having all of the experiences and problems and bugs that people ran to all cataloged in a big database. And so you can just search for Angular 2 and get a overview of learning curve and amount of friction involved. That's really fascinating. I wish I could have a heat map of API documentation where people were like, this is annoying. This isn't, this doesn't make sense. And then I could look at it and just like show up in red where the bad documentation is. I'm sorry. I know you said heat map, but it kind of sounded like hate map. And I like that too. Oh, let's go with that. That's good. Maybe, (laughs) maybe I can trademark that. (laughs) So that's interesting that we could, we could compare developer experience across libraries, across. I don't know, you could do it across tools. You could also do it across changing techniques within your team, retro to retro. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely some statistical significance questions in there on how you kind of slice and dice and break up the data. But it seems like with the type of things that you'd need scale for, you'd be able to get statistical significance and scale without having so much noise in there that you can't interpret the results. Like, for example, if you were looking at learning curves, you'd have to factor in a lot of other kinds of contextual things to be able to like, for example, how long have you been working with this framework already has a significant impact on what your experience is with like it at that moment, right? If you're working on something unfamiliar or familiar, you're going to see something totally different. Yeah, there's those different definitions of better again. Yeah. Do you have anything on change sizing? What I mean by that is how big of a change or how many things should you change at once? Hey, stacks. Haystacks. <laughs> so it's like haystacks. Yeah. I think it's it's one of those things that is is a gray relative to the kind of thing that you're you're doing. I mean, in general, we want to keep haystacks small, I think is a pretty good principle. That said, I think there's a matter of practicality to that in that batch size creates efficiency to some degree. And depending on like if I'm changing something and there's a whole bunch of other effects that I'm not going to be, I'm going to lose that ability to see cause and effect. I'd say that's probably the best guidance I could give on haystack sizes, how it's going to affect your ability to experiment and track down, isolate. I'm I'm always looking for better mental models for this because one of the things that I've noticed is that the teams that need the most help, you often have to make the smallest changes because their systems are so chaotic that it's hard to predict or evaluate a change. Yeah. That's all. That's all I had about that. <laughs> Is it time for reflections? Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to do my reflection. I mentioned I mentioned earlier in the show a book by Gerald Weinberg, and he actually wrote. Uh, so 
fun story. What originally happened was he wrote this giant tome on what he called quality software management. And his publisher was like, that's 1500 pages or something. We can't publish that. So he ended up splitting it up into, I think six or seven books all under the heading of quality software management. And they're about systems thinking, understanding feedback mechanisms, the topic of resolving bugs that I mentioned is just one part of a book on understanding why software fails. Uh, All the books are great. uh, But what they mostly point out for me is that this problem has been around as long as there's been software and it keeps showing up people write these books and i don't know what the problem is maybe we need to actually read the books maybe that's the problem but this is a problem that's been around for a long time i'm really excited to see new work in this area i think that your the concepts in your book are are fascinating and are quite different they're in some ways very complementary but in some ways quite different from the concepts in, in this book so i think you could read your book and then also read these books and sort of get a good broad sort of overview of how we've been thinking about these problems for a long time. On that theme of plugging other people's books, there was one book that again was written 25 years ago by Peter Senge, The Fifth Discipline and uh, the Art and Practice of the Learning Organization. And it's another whole area that is so rich with just incredible knowledge that I is very applicable to software development of the discipline itself of learning and codifying knowledge and sharing it with others and being able to think together as a team. And it's one of those books that fundamentally got me obsessed with this whole learning discipline dynamic of figuring out how to pull off what sounds like organizational utopia. And yet when I talk to developers at conferences, almost nobody has read this book. And so the fifth discipline needs to be in the realm of software stuff on on everybody's reading list. Yeah, that's exactly what uh, Gerald Weinberg's books were for me uh, when I discovered them, you know, 20 years after they'd been written. It's so funny. I was actually just about to jump in with a recommendation for the fifth <laughs> discipline. Um, it, I should probably go reread it. It's been long enough that I've, I've lost uh, a fair bit of it. But for our listeners who may not have heard of it, this was described to me as sort of the th- systems thinking 101 textbook. Um, and what I remember getting out of it the first time I read it was that it has this really interesting visual language for describing complex systems with multiple different feedback loops so that you can sort of get a handle on what's happening and maybe use that understanding to figure out what might be the most effective thing to change next. But going back to the conversation, I think my takeaway is I'm going to have to listen to it about three or four more times to make sure I get everything. But um, one thing that really struck me as we were going through was this idea that the pain that we experience in developments in software development is really cognitive dissonance. Um, that really rings true to me, and it's a really useful reminder for me to Maybe stop and think the next time I'm going, God damn it, and stop and try to unpack exactly what it is that I'm feeling. Because as humans, we have this uh, tendency to resolve cognitive dissonance in the fastest way possible, which is almost never the most effective way, but that's just what we do. (laughs) Uh, So that was a really good reminder to me. Thank you. One thing that came up today and was important in Janelle's book was about how important it is to have an accurate model of the system we're building in your head. And I liked Sam's description of programming is like summoning a demon. If you don't get the incantation just right, it's going to jump out the circle and eat you like a goat. And that conceptual model is it's like in order to summon the demon correctly, you have to hold it in your mind just right. And yet, to summon a really big demon, like a system that is big and complicated and does all the stuff that we want our software to do these days, you have to have a whole team of people holding that demon in their minds, and it has to be sufficiently accurate in all of them. And that's really hard to do. And then, so the only way we can know whether we are all holding the same demon in our mind before we activate the summoning and it eats all of us (laughs) is to do these little experiments. (laughs) So we have to devise ways of knowing whether what we're doing is actually having the effect we want. And one fascinating thing about Janelle's work is that we can ask those questions. We can do those experiments on ourselves, not just on the code. And as we get better at it, well, as we do more of these experiments, then we get more right. 
and we get the demon like more cohesive in all of our minds. And then we really get faster without the scary danger. I'm glad that Sam and I were both muted earlier when we were talking because we were laughing because you should not be rewarded for your goat shenanigans. (laughs) Okay, fine. That's funny. (laughs) The goat thing, it wasn't expected today, but there it is. Okay, it's really important that we give our listeners a way to find out more about your work, Janelle. All right. So my book is available on leanpub.com forward slash idea flow website, openmastery.org, Twitter, Janelle KZ. I think all of those will, will provide links to more stuff that people can read if they're interested in finding out more. Fantastic. Thank you to all of our listeners. And we will see you on the next episode of Greater Than Code, and maybe also on Patreon and on our patron-only Slack. <laughs>